Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan. Welcome to a special edition of Consensus in Conversation, live from Atlanta, featuring Chris Clark, President and CEO of the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. Chris and I had the honor of closing out our recent summit, the Southern Surge, a next-generation manufacturing summit, that brought together many influential policymakers, corporate leaders, economic experts, academics, and more from across the state and region to discuss the recent boom in next-generation manufacturing, including clean energy, batteries and storage, and electric vehicles. After the passage of federal legislation like the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, billions of dollars of investment have flowed into the American manufacturing industry, creating thousands of new jobs and revitalizing local economies. Georgia, along with the greater Southeast, has positioned itself at the forefront of this phenomenon, as companies from around the world are deciding to build their biggest projects in the state. By our count, over $84 billion and 2 million jobs are slated for the region. At this event, panelists discussed how Georgia and the South are preparing for this increased amount of economic activity by developing workforce and designing and deploying critical infrastructure like roads and internet broadband. We learned about the growing clean energy sector's transformative impact on smaller communities and the strategies that Georgia, as one model, is employing to catalyze even more investment in the coming decades. As the head of the Georgia Chamber, Chris Clark is integral to the conversations that are attracting these new projects, so he was the perfect person to help us synthesize our learnings from the day. Interestingly, Chris believes that these companies are not merely selecting Georgia because of high monetary incentives. Many states can build those kind of packages. Rather, he believes that certain companies are drawn to the cultural phenomenon he calls the Georgia way, which manifests in a socially conscious business mindset and a commitment to giving back to the surrounding community. It's a perfect fit for what I focus on during every episode of this podcast. Chris applies this idea in his own life through his servant-hearted leadership style, and I admire his selfless efforts to inspire the next generation of responsible corporate innovators. Since Southern Surge event was held outside of our studios and inside a historic freight depot, please excuse the extra background noise. Hopefully, it'll give you a sense of the excitement and energy that filled the space. All right, let's get started. Thanks for being this here. This is how it always is with the huge audience, exactly. big lights. This is how every podcast, I got it. Yeah, you should see our office. It's, I'm it's, sure. It's impressive. So Chris has this TED Talk that I loved. I watched a few days ago, and it really, really resonated with me. I'm really excited to read your new book that come, came out in May. Mm-hmm. For those of you that don't know, it's called The CEO Imperative, Faith-Based Service in a Toxic World. It's really well aligned with Consensus's mission and, and my particular goal with the podcast to talk about how organizations and leaders have this opportunity to do good in the world through their work. And so I want to start really fundamentally just with your approach to business and leadership and how you think about these things. Sure. So... I think my purpose, quite frankly, I think all of our purposes is to love God and love other people. And the purest way to do that is to serve them. And I think if you do that in every component of your life, you become servant hearted. And I think that shows up in some different ways. And I think it's much needed in leadership today. I think it's much needed in the corporate community. But I think it leads to a couple of things. One is how you approach the assignments that you're given, right? So instead of being an employee, all of a sudden I'm a steward of the opportunity I have. Instead of being a manager, I'm a shepherd of the team that I have. Instead of being a leader, I'm a sage and I'm pouring into other people. And I think that's the approach that we try to take at the Georgia Chamber, that we try to live up to. And I think there's another component of that that's very important is we start to deal with Gen Z and Gen Alpha entering the workforce. I think we have to understand from their perspective, they're not looking for a job. They're not looking for a college. They're not looking for a city. They're not looking for a company. They're looking for a community and a purpose. And if you're serving them, you're helping them become the person they want to be in the long term, and you're going to grow your business, you're going to grow your community, you do all the things that you want to do, but you do it by doing good at the end of the day by serving other people. You've got a great quote 
businesses can do good things if they care about people. And I think that that speaks to what you just mentioned, but also it raises something which I think is really interesting. As we think about the Southern Surgeon today's event, I saw you recently wrote, you know, we've got 14,000 projects in Georgia, 70 billion invested, 165,000 new jobs over the last 4.5 years. Astounding numbers, huge statistics, right? But it, there's this other reality that you always introduce, which I think is really powerful, that companies are nothing more than the men and women who work there. Right. And communities are nothing more than the men and women who live and pray and play together. The statistics are astronomical, but dial this back to the yeah. personal level for us and, and talk to us about how you think about these numbers when you're thinking about your approach to leadership. Sure, we all love statistics, we all love to brag. These are great numbers, they're you know, once in a generation type of economic development announcements, but at the end of the day, what does all that mean? What does it mean at the, you know, for the individuals in your communities? And what always struck me about economic development, I would drive past a, a, a big manufacturing facility that you know, I had some little role with, and you realize that there's 2,000 people working in there, they don't know me. They don't care. They don't care about anything that happened, but we're helping them be the husband and wife they want to be, to be the father they want to be, the little league coach they want to be, the Sunday school teacher they want to be, because they have the opportunity to work. And so this incredible string of announcements that Governor Kemp has led here in Georgia, it's given our citizens of the state of Georgia the opportunity to have more places to go to work, more opportunities for them and their children to stay in those communities, maybe where they grew up. It's going to pay them higher wages. The communities where these companies locate are able to invest back into the quality of life. And the other thing, too, that I don't think we can overlook, we're in a good place right now economically. At some point, we won't be, right? We're going to have some type of economic downturn, some type of recession. But Georgia's economy, because of this string of, of hits that we've been on, is going to be much more resilient. We're going to weather those storms, which means our citizens are going to weather those. And so I think it always has to come back, and you heard that today from a lot of the folks on the stage, that it has to come back to the men and women that we work with, that we care about, that we love, and that we want to serve. Yeah, I, I remember a conversation I had a few weeks ago with Tina May from, from Land Lakes, and she was talking about their initiative coming out of COVID. You know, she said, I, I was driving to work one day and driving past one of the Land Lake plants, and, and she drove into the parking lot and stopped and asked folks what was going on and realized these were three families that didn't have broadband access. And so they'd come to the manufacturing plant, which was the closest place they could find a signal. Right. And um, she said that moment was infrastructure to her. That moment defined broadband infrastructure. It's not about laying wires. That day, they actually told all plants, both suppliers and the ones they owned, if your Wi-Fi's not on, go in and turn it on. Right. And make sure the community knows we're here, and if they need a place to dial in for school, we got you. And we saw that in Georgia. We literally saw families that would drive from 10 miles out in the country, and their kid would sit on the, on the sidewalk outside the school. And so that's helped jumpstart our broadband investment in Georgia. If you look, just since COVID, more than 170,000 families in Georgia have access to high-speed broadband than had it before. It's a good segue. I, I loved the story earlier. We had a, a great conversation for folks that are listening around community building and uh, the investments that Kia has made in Georgia and the the idea that it's a bit of a marriage between uh, the company and the community. If you have any particular projects or deals or marriages in the economic development space that really stick out over the last few years and would be fun for readers to hear about. Connor, I think there's a, a couple of things. First of all, on a bigger level, I think what's been surprising to me is we went, for those in the room here and that are listening that have been in Georgia, 
we went about 15 years with two quote unquote mega projects, right? Companies that had over 1500 employees. And then we've gone through a spell where every six months we get a new one. And so just the sheer size of those companies adding over the last four years, almost $60 billion worth of investment. That ripple effect, I don't know that we can say we've seen all the impact it's going to have yet, right? We're still building a lot of these big announcements. I think there are some interesting companies that have led the way, and, and SK Battery is an incredible announcement. I think that shocked and surprised us that they chose Georgia as the hub, really their first U.S. hub for this huge battery manufacturer. And you think, well, that's cool. We're glad to have them here. But the fact that they went into their community as a community partner, they went and hired the right people that live and work in that community. They didn't bring in a lot of folks. They said, we're going to invest in housing here. We're going to work with the power company. We want to be good partners. And what's really cool about that plan is when you tour it and in your mind, you're thinking it's a manufacturing plan. You go in there and everybody's in a, in a clean suit and you can't touch anything and they're making these batteries. And then you finish and you go to the end and you see the placards, and these are going to Volkswagens, and these are going to Ford. And you realize this is just rippling around the whole world, and it's happening here in Georgia. I will tell you one other fun one that I'm still trying to wrap my head around, and it's Archer Aviation, which is going to Covington, Georgia. This is an incredible company, and here's how it's going to work. You will pull out your phone. You'll open an app that looks like Uber, and you'll press the button, and a flying electric taxi will land at your house, electric, and you will get in and you will travel 50 miles to whatever your destination is, and it will cost about the same thing as an Uber ride. They're headquartered out of California. They're doing technology there. They're going to build their prototypes here in Georgia. They're employing hundreds of Georgians. It's just going to have an incredible impact, but this is another example of that leading-edge innovation technology that's going to revolutionize transportation, just like EV is revolutionizing it now. These guys already have contracts in other cities and states to ferry passengers back and forth. It's just exciting, and they've come in with the same heart that we're going to be part of the Georgia way, and I don't think you can overlook that. If companies think about moving to Georgia, we have had in this state for a hundred years what we call the Georgia way, the Atlanta way. And it's that if you're going to be in this state, if you're going to be in a leadership role, if you're going to employ Georgians, you're going to give back to the community. You're going to be part of the community, your corporate citizenry. And I remember as a young man moving into one of my first leadership roles in Atlanta, being visited by the CEO of a Fortune 500 company who wagged his finger in my face and said, you know, your job is not just to make a profit and to do what your board tells you, but it's to make a difference in the community. And that's the kind of companies that are moving here because they see that and they want to be part of it and they're impacting their communities. How do you sell that? Because that's such a powerful concept. And I think if we can get more folks thinking that way, it changes the world for the better. How do you instill that particular value as part of your business development pitch for this great state? Yeah, I think we spend a lot of time on roads and bridges and tax credits that we, we don't get to that. I think it's a little bit of a reputation, right? That's why our corporate community has been so engaged in economic development because it's much better coming from them. And the best example of that is we hosted the Olympics here in 1996. Well, that was great, super You guys came to town, everybody went home, fine. It's great traffic for about two weeks. But what the state did is the business community said, we're going to partner with the state and we're going to leverage this experience to tell our story around the world. And we created a group called the Georgia Allies that have since then, for the last 25 years, traveled the world telling the story, but it's an executive to an executive. It's a business to a business. And when you want to be here, when you come here, there's an expectation. We had a big project that looked at Georgia a few years ago and it didn't end up coming here. But it was interesting that I had a call from the other side of the country from another chamber CEO who said, 
I don't know that it's a good fit for you. I said, you mean for me personally? He says, no, no, for Georgia. And I said, I don't, what are you saying? He goes, well, you've got the Georgia way. And I said, what do you know about that? And he told me about it. He goes, this company doesn't believe that. That's not their DNA. Yeah. I was like, okay, great. Now they went somewhere else, but Microsoft is another example, moved here from out West, building a huge facility here. Before they ever announced as they were looking at their location, they were meeting with corporate leaders. They were meeting with nonprofit leaders. They were meeting educators, Governor Kemp, others saying, what do we do for the Georgia way? How do we fit in here? Yeah. And so a lot of it's, I think, word of mouth and just living it, right? Self-selects a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, not that I want you to pick a favorite child, but give us some examples of the companies that you think best epitomize that Georgia way right now. Or some of them. Give so I have 50,000 members. Yeah. So let's, <laughs> let's settle in and let's start walking through. But no, I, th I think you've got halo companies, right? Like Coca-Cola, Georgia sure. Power, uh, UPS, Home Depot. These guys have been here. They're setting the pace. Our banks in Georgia have been incredible. But I, I go back, Georgia Power, I just love their corporate slogan is a citizen wherever we serve. If you come to work here, you're a citizen where you serve. If you want to do business with us, this is our expectation. I think they live the walk, talk the talk. Uh, but you know, Synovus, uh, WC Bradley, Gulfstream. I can go to every community in Georgia, and there are companies there that get it, that write the checks, that show up, that invest, send their employees out. I mean, the list goes on yeah. and on and on. Yeah. For those that haven't listened, when, when you do hear this, listen to the episode that came out July 13th, today. The, it's Tillamook Creamery out of Oregon. And Paul Snyder from Tillamook has this great phrase, which I love, and I've, I've started to adopt, which is, this is the best of capitalism. This is Capitalism, but stakeholder capitalism, where your employees do matter because without them, you don't succeed. Your community matters without roads and bridges and, and broadband for your employees' kids. You don't succeed. And stakeholder capitalism is a really compelling way to think about all this. It is. The other term that I maybe like a little bit better and I still question it a little bit is this idea of conscious capitalism. Yeah, yeah. But businesses in Georgia have been conscious capitalists from the beginning. And if you look back particularly at the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. used that when he went to the corporate community here and said, listen, if you don't say something, you're complicit. You've said that this is who you are, that you believe in giving back, believe in engaging, so here's the opportunity. And company after company after company, before anywhere else in the South or, or much else in the country, stepped forward and said, we're going to change our policies. We're going to do different. We're going to be a partner. We're going to work together. And so, yeah, you can name it and brand it whatever you want. But sure. at the end of the day, it goes back to just doing good, right? Just do the right thing. Right. And that's why I love my job, because I get to work with companies that do the right thing every day. Give me the best part of your job. What's your favorite thing you get to do every day? I think it's just serve, uh, whether that's going and helping a local chamber of commerce, whether it's going to work with a business to hear they've got an issue or a problem and hand it off to our advocacy team to work on it at the Capitol or work on it in D.C. or to tell their story, uh, to work on workforce development issues, all the big things we work on as a chamber. Everything that we're doing is because a member has said, we need help. Yeah. And when somebody can, feels comfortable enough to come to you and say, we need help, then you know they trust you, and you know you can make a difference. And so that's, that's what I love. No, no day is the same, but we're helping someone every time we wake up as a, as a chamber team. It seems like, especially listening to the conversations today, and you've got this concept of the new Georgia economy, which I love. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could start by just talking us through that, because it, it seems to mirror some of the conversations we've had today <laughs> quite nicely. So give us a little bit about that, and we'll, then we'll maybe talk about each 
segment of that for a few minutes also. Sure. So we've been saying at the Georgia Chamber for literally for the last eight years that the economy is changing rapidly. Here's where it, where it became very clear to me. Before 1800, it took 100 years for human knowledge to double. And then by 1950, it only took 25 years. Now, that's enough time for governments to catch up, for policies yep. to catch up, for educators to catch up. We're fine. Now you fast forward. Human knowledge doubles almost every 13 months. Well, by 2030, it will double twice a day. That's, that's too much to comprehend. You can't keep yeah. up with workforce. You can't keep up with your policies. And so we have to continue to be looking. And so our organization has tried to, build, to position itself as a thought leader of where George is going so that you as a business owner can understand, I need to start making these changes and think about this now for 10 years from now. And so we've been having this discussion and we focus, we're literally for most of our 108 years of existence, we focus on three critical areas. One is workforce development and winning the war for talent. The other one is this idea of competitiveness, economic dynamism, innovation. And then the third one is looking at what's the infrastructure of the future, not just what we need to, to fix the pothole today that just ruined my tire, but what does that infrastructure look like in the future? And so every policy, every event, every program that we do is based around moving the needle on those three buckets. Now, within those buckets, there are 20 things. Sure. But I think policymakers and business leaders and the general public can understand we work on these three. We'll continue to be the best place to do business for the next nine years. And that's part of the focus. So let's go through each of those. Okay. Workforce development. Yep. If you were to talk to any other state in the country, I think it's clear from today's conversation, there's a lot to be proud of. There's a lot that's leading edge here in Georgia. How would you get others to kind of emulate some of the success here? And what do they need to be doing or thinking about differently? What, what stands out to you as the one differentiator among all the great things that are getting done here in, in workforce development? Well, I don't know that I want to share our secrets to success, <laughs> right? I mean, this is a competitive environment sure, that sure. we're out there. But no, we've had for a long time, and you've heard it mentioned earlier today, an incredible technical college system that changes on a dime, uh, that can show up to a company, learn how you train your employees, train your new employees, and then you own all the intellectual capital a university system with a chancellor that wants to be workforce development, and a K-12 through system that is, that's trying every day to, to be career-focused. But there are bigger issues out there in the workforce space that we're facing and other states are facing. There's a labor participation problem. Sure. We've lost about 10% of participating labor nationwide in the last 20 years. How do you get those men and women back to work? But then you've also got this idea of reskilling, getting people back into the workforce. But I think more of our focus, Connor, has got to be on Generation Alpha, this is going to be the biggest generation in history. They're in elementary, middle school now. They'll be in high school in a year and a half. If we don't change their productivity level, their innovation, their creativity, connect them with the jobs in their communities, we're not going to be successful. So what are their pathways? How do we incentivize them to be more engaged long-term in their local workforces? And so those are things we're all working on every day, and the list goes on and on. But I'm seeing successful communities in other states start to tackle those same issues. Yeah. How do you think about What's needed to engage a young audience like that? There's so many different problems. We're still educating. I've got a 17-year-old, so he's a Generation Z. We're still educating him the same way that they educated right. me 35 years ago or however long it is now, uh, which is to show up at school and go to these seven classes and then yep. go home. That model is not going to work. It is just fundamentally not going to work anymore, and I don't know why educators are having such a hard time wrapping their head around it. But I think the bigger issue is, is, is this. We are graduating this year in the United States. 40% of all the kids that graduate will never have worked a day in their life, and 40% will have no certificate, 
credential college credit beyond high school. And so 40% will walk out with a piece of paper that is worthless. And so I love what they're doing in the Midwest of requiring every high school student to work or have an internship, or have a skill set development that is work-based learning, that have some type of credential that they can carry with them into the workforce. We've got to get to that point where we're career readiness, yep. not just moving them through a system and getting them out and dumping them with somebody else. Talk to me about that relative to your notion of fulfilling and uh, fulfillment and and purpose for helping these kids find that because how do you yeah. build those two things together part of it is you have to be able to have conversations with kids right they want a purpose right they want a community yeah. and they want a purpose that's why they're on their snapchats and twitters and everything all hours it's a community where we used to hang out in a parking lot yep. they're hanging out on whatever platform that they're on but it's interesting to talk to kids today and my son's friends as we tour college campuses they want to go to work for a company that matters, that has a purpose that they can tangibly see is doing good and doing better. And I think that reverberates maybe through some other things we want to talk about today. But I think you've got to get in with kids early enough to see what motivates them at an earlier age and then direct them toward that. You can't just hope that they figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked to a student that I mentored the other day. He's a great guy. I said, hey, there's an opportunity in this field. I think you'd be great for it. He goes, I never heard of that field before. Well, why would you? No one yeah. ever had that. And another example, I gave a talk to a group of high school students and two of the young women came up afterwards and said, thank you so much. You just changed our decision-making, what we're going to do. I said, well, how was that? She goes, well, we want to be nurses because we, we want to be caregivers, but we were going to go to North Carolina and do that. And I said, well, why would you do that? She says, no one ever told us that there were nursing jobs open in Georgia. I mean, I got 40,000 nursing jobs open, yeah. but no one had ever taken that time early in their career to say, Let's take you to the hospital and see where the needs are going to be. Right. So a lot of that's businesses getting bad in the classroom, parents thinking differently, but we have to connect with kids at a much younger age. Yeah. So pillar two, yep. economic dynamism, innovation. Yep. What are you seeing in Georgia that you're most excited about for the future? I think we just have to continue to make sure that we've got the stable tax policy, stable regulatory policies. We've heard that today in the different panels that are up here. I think that's been critical for us for the last 20 years. It's going to be very important. But we've also got a shift in how we help entrepreneurs, particularly minority entrepreneurs. Governor Kemp's got a great program we supported that's launching this year to help veteran and minority-owned small businesses get better state contracts. And then what does that innovative uh, piece look like? Yeah. You know, we should be creating the next generation of entrepreneurs here. They shouldn't be going to Boston or going to California, they should be here in the South. Uh, we haven't done a great job of that. You got some examples, sure, like the Home Depots, but where is that every day? And yeah. part of that goes back to introducing to students the idea of entrepreneurship and innovation earlier. I do worry about Gen Z particularly because we locked them away for two years and they seem to be, if you read the reports, less resilient and less of a risk taker entrepreneurs and innovators need to be able to yeah. take risk. And so that's that's part of what all this has got to roll into. But having that stable government platform that supports businesses, levels the playing field is absolutely critical. I talk a lot with entrepreneurs that are in what I think many consider unsexy fields like agriculture. Yeah. And I think we need to do a better job of making sure that future entrepreneurs know that there's really cool things happening in industries that have been around forever. Right. I loved, yesterday, the, the Chamber hosted an amazing event on the future of sustainability, and one of the things that stuck out was a young woman who works in peanut farming. Mm -hmm. And think about an industry that's not necessarily going to be top of mind for anybody, but there are some peanut farmers out there that are killing it. Yeah. And they're thinking about the world differently, and they're bringing their, their 
Gen Z or their millennial approach and it's different and it's refreshing and they're changing something or other and it's working. And so yeah. being more open-eyed and inclusive with what is an entrepreneurial opportunity, I think, is something that all of us have to do in industry. I, I agree. There's another great story, and I, I can't think of the name of the company right now, but it's a peanut farmer, peanut company in South Georgia, who went on a mission trip to Africa and saw the issues that they had there with food security and came back and said, wait a minute, peanuts have protein, they have all these benefits, but peanut butter doesn't, you can't send it over, it'll go bad. And so they developed a whole new product around you know, saving lives and feeding people in Africa grew up as a peanut farmer, you know, this is what his life dream, and now all yeah. of a sudden he's got a whole new new approach. So there's all kind of those opportunities and excitement out there. The last pillar, infrastructure of the future. Give us a few seconds on that. So we need to think, quit thinking about infrastructure just as the, as the immediacy of what we see. What's the broadband need going to be in the future? Uh, how do we move goods and products around in the future? Cybersecurity needs to be part of that discussion, but also healthcare is infrastructure. And I think we tend to think of healthcare as a service. It's not. If you need it or you will die, it's not a service, yeah. right? It's infrastructure at the end of the day. And so I really feel like we've missed an opportunity in America for the last 50 years to think about healthcare differently, innovatively, which we're doing a lot here in Georgia, but also that it is a core part of our community. If you don't have a great healthcare system, there's nothing that we can do to retract or keep a company there as they grow because the next generation is going to look at good schools good healthcare, right? Good parks, good ecology. So that's a broader view that we can spend a lot of time talking about. But part of that too is the last thing I'll say about infrastructure, it's the supply chain component of yeah. how we move goods and products and services in and around the state and in and around the world, which is the ports, the airport, and all the other pieces as well. But looking at it in the totality of the system and not just as an individual, this is my neighborhood road. Well, this is a road that's going to get UPS to deliver the package that was sent from the distribution hub that flew into Hartsfield that came through a port in Europe. Yeah. I want to stick with healthcare for a second, okay. but I want to use it to pivot back to where we began thinking about the CEO imperative. Okay. I can't think of many industries, if any, where the humanity of that company is so critical. The humanity of what the healthcare industry does is life and death. It is right. people out there most vulnerable. It is caring for those who are sick. And I'm curious if, as you think about the book and some of the, the stories that you tell, um, if there's any CEOs that, that come to mind that have really just inspired you in that kind of way with the way that they've run their companies that are so grounded in the human experience. No, I, th I think in, in the book, I actually interview seven executives that have mentored me and that I, I, I love and care about and that I think love and care about their employees. I talked to former governor Sonny Perdue about you know, his spirit and his faith journey. I talked to Shan Cooper, who's a executive famous here in the Atlanta area, who's mentored and encouraged and had the courage to face incredible odds with the companies that she's been with. You know, Hank Lincolnfelter is a former executive with Atlanta Gas Light, who is really one of the most humble people I've ever known. He was my chairman, and he just pours himself into his team. But all these executives, I think at the end of the day, they have the courage to take on issues, but also the courage to encourage and make it not about themselves, but about someone else and about their employees and how do you help them. And a great example, I was touring a hospital, going back to the healthcare, yeah. I was touring a hospital three weeks ago with an executive. And I noticed as we went through this, you know, hospitals are so big and they've got so many employees that every employee that he passed, he knew their name, he spoke to them, they would high five him. And even the patients, 
like we were in a cancer ward, the patients would come over and he would know their name and wow. speak to them. And that just melts your heart right there. And he's like, here's somebody that cares and they're here for the right reason. That's servant heartedness. That's what you want to emulate. And that's what, you know, he's modeling that for all of the employees in that company. It doesn't matter that he's the CEO. It's just who he is by nature. Yeah. It's just even a little bit better if he is the CEO. So how do we evangelize that? How do we get, again, more companies, more CEOs, more leaders open to this frame of mind? I think that's, that's the whole imperative to the CEO imperative is we're in a toxic workplace. It's in a toxic environment. Men and women can go wherever they want to go. They're going to look for companies that care about them, care about their future, want to help them grow, mature. And at the end of the day, companies are going to have a decision. You can follow that path and you can care and help and change or you can take the same model that you've had. Those companies are not going to be here. Those companies will not be successful long-term. We said it earlier, you don't locate a company based on the location, you locate it on where the people are. Yeah. And it's got to be people-driven at the end of the day. I mean, it's relationships. It's, you've heard that word a lot today. It's relationships, it's communities, right. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. This is a regular question I ask almost everybody. Okay. But I'm curious, if, if you were asked to define what you hope your legacy to be, and that can be... Broadly speaking, in a community, it can be narrowly speaking in a family. It can be in a faith community. When you think back, what do you hope your legacy is? Listen, I, and, and I say this uh, after having pride and ego that were not in check for a long time. I don't care. doesn't matter to me if I'm remembered or not. But if the people that I helped along the way do good things and do good work and are good parents, and you know, if my son figures it out eventually, then you made a difference at the end of the day. You don't worry about having your name on the side of a building or, or uh, you know, all the things that we used to think mattered. Right. It doesn't matter. It's temporary. You know, I'm, I'm in it for the eternal piece of this, which is a benefit far, far later. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. For Thanks, Scott. For doing this little yeah. experiment with us. All right, there you have it. Our first ever live Consensus in Conversation recording. Thank you to Chris Clark and our friends at the Georgia Chamber of Commerce for all the support. And thanks to everyone who helped make the Southern Surge a great event, not to mention the podcast team, including Patrick Gallagher, Greg Harrigal, Jeff Rock, Will Gatchel, and the team at Reasonable Volume. All right, come back and listen next week.